1: Putin.
2: When Vladimir Putin announced he was annexing parts of Ukraine last week, he did not skimp on the showmanship. He emerged on a stage after walking through gigantic golden doors — pulled open by a pair of goose-stepping soldiers. A packed house was there to hear him speak.
1: Vladimir Putin no doubt likes the trappings of, for lack of a better term, dictatorship.
2: I asked Politico's Brian Bender to sit down and talk about the speech with me.
1: He is the sole power in Russia, and he likes everybody to know that, and so when he does public events, they're usually big and Outsized, and, you know, everything that would go with this sort of cult of personality.
2: There was this one moment I wondered if Brian had noticed. It was when Putin claimed he was scooping up parts of Ukraine because it was the will will of millions of people. This is a specious claim at best, but it didn't matter. It was as if one of those old-time applause signs had gone off. And the studio audience, they knew just what to do.
1: Well, you know, this is not unlike, and, you know, I'm one who tries to avoid historical analogies because they're never perfect. But a bunch of people last week were raising, you know, Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Adolf Hitler did very similar things in Poland and Czechoslovakia, where he annexed German-speaking portions of those countries that bordered on Germany. And, of course, a lot of it is staged. And, you know, when you say millions support this, it's really hard to know how true that really is.
2: And who believes it?
1: And who believes it? Russia has a very accomplished, sophisticated propaganda machine.
2: In this speech, Putin raised a kind of specter. He started talking about how the United States created a precedent for the use of nuclear weapons when it bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. Would you say Putin's threatening nuclear war?
1: It's all scary, but I think what makes it scarier in the Russian case, in Putin's case, is that they've become more and more explicit uh, raising the nuclear specter, as Putin did. And how many times does he threaten it until he gets to a point where he's gotta sort of back up his threats?
2: Today on the show, Putin has got his back against the wall. What are his options? And what kind of options does the rest of the world have? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. Let's talk about what happened after Vladimir Putin's big speech last week. Because only a day after this announcement that Russia was annexing Donetsk and Luhansk, these regions of Ukraine, thousands of troops had to withdraw from a strategic town in the area. Can you explain what happened?
1: Yeah, so this gets to the sort of split-screen nature of this conflict. On the one hand, you have Putin making this grand announcement on Friday of Russia annexing these territories in Ukraine, not declaring victory, but clearly trying to spin this story that we're getting what we wanted, we're achieving our aims. But then the other screen, which is reality, is on the ground Mm -hmm. in the East, where the Ukrainian military armed by the United States, NATO countries, and others are arguably pummeling the Russian military. Today, Ukrainian troops press deeper into Russian-controlled territories on the southern and eastern fronts. And this victory came easily, the soldiers say. Russians,
3: uh, go away. A little shoot, (laughs) go away.
1: To the point where a few weeks ago, Putin had to announce a partial mobilization, basically calling up. Ex-soldiers who had any sort of military experience to come back. We've seen these reports that many Russian men who would be potentially sent to fight in the war are fleeing the country. By some counts, hundreds of thousands of them.
2: An exodus of Russians fleeing across the border into Georgia, Finland, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, and elsewhere to avoid being conscripted. At
1: one point, so many Russian cars arrived at this checkpoint, the miles-long line could be seen from space. And, you know, the Ukrainians are stepping up their propaganda, so to speak, too, and their fear tactics. Um, I thought it was striking the other day that the Ukrainian leader um, Zelensky announced that, you know, hey, Russian soldiers, you should all get your names tattooed on your bodies. So we can identify your corpses so we can send them home to your mothers.
2: Brian says it's not just the facts on the ground that are shifting in Ukraine's favor. It's the way those facts are being interpreted around the world, but more importantly, in Russia itself.
1: You're starting to see leading media personalities and others even speak out publicly against Putin, saying that he's made a mistake here, that this has been a disaster. And so, um, again, I think that gets back to why people are so worried about the potential for him to do something completely unthinkable, including using a nuclear weapon, because he's been very unpredictable so far. Nobody thought he would invade Ukraine the way he did. Everybody was basically wrong. And if he's pushed into a corner so much where he feels like literally the ground under his feet is cracking, in other words, his hold on power is cracking, I mean, some people worry God knows what he would do.
2: So what do you think if, God forbid, it happened, what do you think a Russian nuclear strike would look like in Ukraine? And I want to talk about this, but I also want to acknowledge that I think most experts still think this is a very rare possibility, um, but definitely feels like more of a possibility now than it has in the past.
1: What it would look like um, sort of runs the gamut. We know that Russia has at least several thousand of these so-called tactical nuclear weapons.
2: What does that mean? Small?
1: Small in the sense that most of us, when we think of nuclear war, we think of a nuclear holocaust. We think of Russia launching a bunch of missiles across the world, us launching a bunch of missiles and literally destroying cities and, you know, laying waste to large parts of nations. That's not what we're talking about here. Most people think that scenario is even more unlikely because— Not just Putin, but his military generals know that if they did something or even showed signs of going in that direction, you know, game over. Game over, unfortunately, for for everyone. Because the rest of the world would respond. The rest of the world would respond. The United States would respond. um, And it's just so unpredictable what the next steps would be. I mean, the miscommunication, before you know it, you're in an all-out nuclear war. Hopefully, the Russians know that. So what we're talking about here are several thousand bombs that are sort of orders of magnitude less powerful than even the bombs the United States dropped on Japan at the end of World War II.
2: Yeah, I read that the smallest nuclear weapon in Russia's arsenal is one kiloton, which is one-fifteenth of the size of a weapon dropped, the weapon dropped in Hiroshima.
1: Exactly. And there are other weapons, supposedly, and some of this information is classified and it's not you know, always clear what intelligence is valid and what isn't. They also have even smaller ones, things they call micro-nukes, which are on the order of, you know, several hundred tons. So not kilotons, which is, you know, one kiloton is a thousand tons. Tens of tons or hundreds of tons.
2: What would that do if it was launched?
1: I mean, if you have a major Ukrainian um, military base or a key town you could basically take it out. It would be fairly limited in geography, um, you know, compared to some of these other much uh, larger-yield nuclear weapons. And these could come in the form of an artillery shell, a missile, uh, and that's one of the worries, is that a lot of the Russian military systems that are being used in Ukraine, missiles, aircraft, artillery pieces, Almost all of them are what are called dual capable. So they can launch a normal conventional bomb or missile, but they can also launch some of these smaller nuclear weapons.
2: So you're saying they could just switch things up pretty easily.
1: They could just switch things out. So, you know, unlike a nuclear missile that's designed to fly across the world, you kind of know what that looks like. You could spot potentially when that's on the move or there's an alert and, you know, these large nuclear bases are, you know, engaging in some heightened activity that you can maybe pick up, it'd be very difficult to know, not impossible, but difficult to know if some artillery unit was swapping out normal bombs for their smaller atomic munitions.
2: The conversation we're having is so theoretical at the moment. And as we've said, it's important to remember there's a significant chance, probably it's very likely that Vladimir Putin does not use nuclear weapons. And I saw this interesting argument and I wondered what you made of it, which was part of the reason Vladimir Putin might avoid using nuclear weapons in this conflict is because it would rob him of one of his primary talking points, which is that the United States is the only nation to use nuclear weapons in a conflict
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Um, You know, some people push back on that. I talked to Graham Allison, who's at Harvard, who's a longtime nuclear strategist in and out of the government. He said, that doesn't really hold because that line is more about sort of nation states going to war against each other, two nuclear powers going up against each other. Whereas Ukraine is not a nuclear power, Russia is. But even beyond that, though, I think it's, it's... it's sort of irrelevant in some ways because I think if you think it's unlikely Putin will do this, and that turns out to be wrong. In other words, he does go down this road. I think he goes down that road because all bets are off. Hmm. And so I'm not sure he's going to care at that point what the world thinks about his narrative about, you know, we're the victim and the U.S. is the bully and they're the nuclear bullies. It seems to me if he goes this route, you know, he, he's already thrown up his hands and, and probably sees this as his last resort.
2: You mean nuclear war?
1: Well, no, which is the other outcome here, which is that things get worse. The Russian position in Ukraine gets worse. Putin's position at home gets worse. And something happens that, for my count, happened at least three times in modern history in Russia, which is that he gets removed, that there's a coup. I think it's very, it's almost more likely that that could happen than the nuclear use in Ukraine.
2: Why do you say that? Why do you think that it's more likely he gets removed than nukes get used?
1: Well, because the Soviets, the Soviets did it a couple times. They removed the leader of the Soviet Union quietly. They were, you know, poisoned or they died or they disappeared. Um, They did it once in post-Soviet Russia with Yeltsin. I mean, Yeltsin was basically toppled from power. And so you you could imagine a scenario, and I think a lot of Russia experts are also talking about this, where the generals or some of the other hardliners around Putin, I mean, we're not talking about a democratic coup. We're not talking about the good guys take over.
2: It's not the people in the streets.
1: Another bad guy decides that this guy is literally driving the country off the cliff. We got to get rid of him. If somebody toppled Putin, I mean, maybe at least they would pull out of Ukraine and start to, if not sue for peace, start to try and figure out a way to restore some of Russia's standing in the world. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm, maybe, maybe that's wishful thinking.
2: After the break, could Russia's allies prevent a nuclear strike?
3: Price and coverage match limited by state law.
2: You've written that in the last few weeks, diplomats have been ramping up their efforts to basically get Russia's allies to speak some sense to Moscow when it comes to nuclear weapons, when it comes to the conflict in Ukraine. And I want to talk about that effort. We're primarily talking about India and China, right? Who are Russia's allies at the moment?
1: Yeah, I mean, those are the two big ones that Russia still is heavily reliant on. And they have not cut the cord with Moscow the way, the way Western Europe has and the way a lot of other, you know, democratic-leaning countries like South Korea, Japan, Australia, et cetera. So, yeah, they're, they're the biggies that I think a lot of people think still have real influence um, with the Putin regime.
2: How have they supported Russia through the Ukrainian conflict so far?
1: I mean, economically, I mean, Russia is under an enormous set of sanctions, sanctions from the United States, from countries all over Europe. Uh, That's taking a toll, uh, no doubt. So economically, they've supported Russia. They've continued to trade with Russia. They've continued to, to be partners.
2: For them, it may be a chance to get a bargain, I guess.
1: Perhaps. And, you know, diplomatically, they've at least given him cover on some level. I mean, again, they haven't necessarily been, you know, big cheerleaders for what he's doing in Ukraine. But I think it was telling, in fact, it was Putin himself that let slip a couple of weeks ago after a bunch of Asian countries or South Asian countries were meeting in Uzbekistan. The Chinese leader um, apparently said some negative things to Putin about what he was doing in Ukraine, because Putin, in his public remarks, said that, you know, something along the lines of, you know, we appreciate The criticism and the the advice that we've gotten from our Chinese friends about what's going on in Ukraine. So there's at least some signs that the Chinese have said enough is enough. The Indians have been quite more critical in recent weeks. Um, But they're a huge trading partner for Russia.
2: Other than changing their tone towards Vladimir Putin, what could India and China do here?
1: Uh, They could cut off ties. I mean, they could join sanctions. They could squeeze Russia economically in a way that the, the West never could, because they are just much more aligned at the hip. I mean, they're, they're effectively neighbors. I mean, they live in the same neighborhood in a way that we don't. And so I think, I don't think you can discount the economic pain that could be brought to Russia. Do you expect that to happen? I don't think we're, we're there yet, but I think this is the first signs that you know, depending on where this goes, that is a potential path out, if you will, of this crisis um, in some way. If you had a true global coalition turning Putin and Russia into a complete pariah, that can trade with no one other than, you know, Iran, North Korea, Cuba, and Syria, and, you know, maybe a couple of other outlaw nations. Um, it is interesting, the Chinese have not in any significant way, resupply the Russian military. I think that's telling.
2: Hmm. So they're already kind of drawing a line in the sand. Like, we'll buy your energy, but we're not going to do that.
1: Right. We're going to buy your oil, but we're we're not going to give you drones. We're not going to give you missiles. Um, You know, the Russians have had to turn to the North Koreans um, and the Iranians, uh, in particular, Iran for drones because they don't have anywhere else to go.
2: You know, there was this op-ed in Politico last week that I saw you saw and I saw too that basically said we've entered this age of predatory nuclear weapon states because it's clear from Putin's actions that nuclear countries can pick on other states with disregard for the rest of the world. And that's what the last week has underlined. And I had a couple thoughts about this. First off, obviously, the U.S. is a nuclear power and has made questionable military decisions in the recent past. But also it made me wonder what we could even do to address this question that Russia is opening up here. And whether the diplomats you're talking to are thinking in these broader terms about nuclear weapons and how they are enabling conflict potentially
1: there is going to have to be a rethinking about what is nuclear deterrence. I mean, we thought of nuclear deterrence as, you know, the term back in the old days during the Cold War was mutually assured destruction. We're not going to go to nuclear war. The Russians aren't going to go to nuclear war or other big nuclear powers because we all know that it's the end of all of us. But I think what Ukraine has shown is that a nuclear power can bully a non-nuclear power and in the process, because they have such powerful nuclear arsenal, like Russia does, they can basically bully the rest of the world into not doing a whole lot about it. And so I think that has created this new conversation where you have a couple of different camps. Some will say, of course, well, they have 2,000 tactical nuclear weapons, these battlefield smaller ones. We don't have any or we have very few. We need more of those.
2: So there could be a lot of people who are looking to get their hands on nukes right now just because they think, "Uh, I don't want this to happen to me.
1: Right. And then there's, of course, you mentioned the column in Politico last week um, or a few days ago by Stephen Young, who's a longtime expert in in nuclear issues at the Union of Concerned Scientists. His point of view is this shows that nuclear deterrence basically doesn't work. I mean, you know, you could have a nuclear power that could basically do whatever the hell it wants. And because everybody else is afraid of that nuclear holocaust outcome, there's very limited things they can do to stop them. And so his point of view is this, you know, strengthens the argument that we gotta phase these things out. And even before Ukraine, people were worried about the fact that Russia has upgraded its nuclear arsenal. The United States is spending a trillion dollars over the next 30 years to basically replace everything we're not building more, we're just replacing all of the old ones that we had. Um, the Chinese have dramatically increased their nuclear arsenal in the last few years and have plans for even more. So, you know, there's sort of this nuclear arms race that was kind of going on even before Ukraine. And the question is, will it this fuel that more or will it get some of the major powers in the world to start rethinking, like I said, you know, Is this nuclear thing helping us or hurting us? Is it making the world crazier or more secure? And I think, you know, there's going to be all kinds of debates on that.
2: Brian Bender, I'm really grateful for your time and your reporting.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Brian Bender is a senior national correspondent for Politico. that's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support what we're doing is to go on over to slatecom What Next Plus and sign up for Slate Plus. It's our membership program with great benefits for you, like ad free podcasts. And it also shows the bosses that you like what we're up to. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, Carmel Del Shad, and Madeline Ducharme. We're getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips and Jura Downing. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. I'm passing things off to the What Next TBD crew for now, but I will be back in this feed after the holiday weekend on Tuesday. Catch you then.
1: This is the story of the Watt. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping